What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole, how's it going, brother? It's going great. Grass is green. I'm happy. It is. Yeah, yes. we went through a little drought. Whole grass, all the grass in the neighborhood was brown. Brown. Yeah. Yes. It's, in, it's rained, and that's great. However, yeah. the humidity yes. is unbearable now. So that's not as great. But my grass is green, so I'm But happy. your grass is green, so there you go. And you have AC, so that's fine. Everybody See, I don't wins. have um I don't have a sprinkler system. I don't either. So yeah. I have to use my, you know, some little flop mm, back and forth thing. That's rough. You have to go get it and then move yeah, it. It's and, yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. yeah, we just gotta have to rely on rain at that point. <laughs> my grass is just not getting watered if that's the case. It's like listen. Just take pool water we'll and to, splash we'll it. Might have out. to cut our cut our losses. So um Today's podcast, we're going to do another one of our infamous, um, I guess, uh, redos. Um, I like overview. uh, Yeah. um, Overview redo. Yep. With updates. Let's put that on the shirt. Newest shirt coming soon. But um, we've we've talked about atrial fibrillation before, and uh, we went through the guidelines, uh, I think, a little over maybe a year, year and a half ago. Uh, it's like been that. a couple of years since we did the guidelines. Um, then we did a patient case and whatnot, but we're going to kind of go back over it just for, you know, anybody who's new to the podcast or just if you need a refresher, um, we're going to go back over atrial fibrillation, kind of do like a broad overview. Um, won't be able to cover all the medications, obviously, but we'll try to uh, cover enough of them to feel like you, you get your money's worth. I don't think in the previous ones we did much with the, um, the um, uh, antiarrhythmic like the uh, cardio or the pharmacotherapeutic cardioversion stuff. I think we mostly did rate control, so this will be good. Cool. All right. So atrial fibrillation. Um, you know, we're not going to go through like the action potential and all that stuff. We had a, a quick convo before we started. We're like, should we go through all that? Like, you guys can Google that. I'm you sure know that it's, stuff, right? at some point or another you've seen the old action potential. Um, but as far as the actual, you know, condition of atrial fibrillation, it's it's really the most common type of arrhythmia that you uh, would would encounter. Um, and it's basically a result of multiple waves of electrical impulses in the atria, um, and this leads to this irregular. Um, is in usually kind of associated with this rapid ventricular response as well. So the, the, the heart's not beating correctly, and it's also beating very, very rapidly in a lot of cases. Um, the rapid ventricular rate um, can result in hypotension and can worsen if there's like an underlying uh, like ischemia or any kind of heart failure. Um, and so you'll see some patients that you know have these other comorbidities along with AFib, and that's what we're going to kind of talk about with you know, treatment options stuff is how we can, that would change which medication, you know, we needed to to use or not use. Um, But as far as the actual, you know, disease state, it can buy, it can be kind of broken into sort of like four subgroups, if you will. So the simplest, um, the more uh, acute and also probably the more mild form is the proxismal AFib, um, which typically is going to terminate spontaneously. Um, uh, and it's going to happen within seven days of onset. And usually, especially when someone's first diagnosed, a lot of times it just kind of spontaneously converts back to normal sinus rhythm um, within 24 hours of, of its onset. Um, not always the case, but usually within seven days is kind of like by definition proxismal AFib. Now, if it goes longer than seven days, so if it's, if it's continuous AFib that's sustained for a period of time that's greater than seven days, that would be labeled as persistent AFib. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then when you start getting into continuous AFib that's lasted greater than 12 months of 12 months of having just continuous AFib, that's got to be rough. I'd imagine it's unpleasant, but yeah. maybe you just get used to it. Maybe. I don't know, but you're a lot of times they're symptomatic. So yeah, if you're symptomatic, it means you're not used to Probably it. Probably not all that used to yeah. it. <laughs> um, but that would be considered long-standing persistent. Um, so that's greater than twelve months. And then if basically there's the last and you know final category is that if there's no longer attempts made to kind of restore um, normal sinus rhythm or maintain normal sinus rhythm, um, we kind of consider that permanent. AFib. Now that's worst case scenario. That's where, you know, we've kind of just accepted the fact that's the way the heart's going to beat and we have to try to minimize um, symptoms and, and hopefully prevent any other associated risk like stroke and things like that right. um, as best we can. Yep. Yep. You're just, that's how your heart beats now. Yep. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, so you want to rule out uh, any potential underlying causes like an acute MI um, maybe they have alcohol intoxication, pericarditis, pulmonary embolism, other things that can cause you to have AFib versus just having one of these persistent paroxysmal AFibs. Um, hyperthyroidism as well, or if you've had a cardiac surgery in your post-op, um, it can occur then as well. But um, some of the symptoms might kind of describe, so the clinical presentation you would see would be, of course, palpitations because you're having an arrhythmia. Um, they might call it a, a chest flutter or a heart flutter, something like that. Uh, shortness of breath, chest pain, which is obviously not a fantastic thing to um, go into the ER saying that you're having. It makes people nervous, but um, this is probably a better case scenario than a um, acute MI, I would say. Um, lightheadedness, and frequently they could kind of appear faint, or they, they might describe um, that they felt very faint. Uh, and those are all, all very common um, descriptors of, of AFib symptoms. To evaluate it, you want to get their vitals. So heart rate is going to be a big one because frequently the heart rate is elevated. Um, you're going to want to slap an EKG on them, uh, get cardiac enzymes to be safe, TSH, free T4, um, blood workup, CMP, CBC, that sort of thing, um, just to, to get them monitored and, and make sure that we've got a kind of standard um, AFib case and they're not hemodynamically unstable and we need to take more aggressive action. And um, also making sure, if, if possible, you get, I don't know if you said this or not, so sorry if I'm repeating it, but um, transesophageal echocardio, um, echocardiography to make sure that they don't have any kind of you know, left ventricular dysfunction or heart failure, because um, that can change how we actually treat the, if we decide to go the route of uh, antiarrhythmics, it can change our treatment options. Yep. So... You know, when someone comes in, we're going to start off kind of talking through like kind of an acute setting where they come in to, you know, whether it's the first um, initial onset of AFib or the first, uh, maybe it's the first time it's happened to them in a while. You know, maybe it's just their proxismal and it comes and goes randomly, but patient comes to the, the ED because they're feeling that fluttering in the chest. Um, the first thing we obviously want to do is besides getting the EKG, we'll, we'll get a ventricular rate um, in which you'll see it come up on the EKG that it's AFib and RVR. Um, and if that's the case uh, and that RVR is, is, is present, we need to treat that first. Um, so we need to lower um, and control that ventricular rate. Um, typically speaking, if I shouldn't say typically, a lot of times if we control the that rapid res um, ventricular response and we kind of bring it you know, to a more controlled level. A lot of times we try to aim for around 80 to 100 beats per minute. Uh, the patient will kind of spontaneously revert back to normal sinus rhythm anyway. And then we don't have to continue going forward as far mm -hmm. as like cardioverting and all that. 
Um, so we, we typically want to use something that's going to be, um, we could use oral, but IV is obviously going to be pretty ideal if we can. Um, and then something that's going to kind of reduce the, uh, the heart rate and slow that ventricular rate down. So uh, beta blockers, so we can use like a metoprolol. Um, is, is one that's IV that's available. Um, we also have things like our diltiazem, you know, our non-dihydrocalcium channel blockers. Uh, and those those two medications, you know, there's others you may see here and there, but those two are, are pretty easily, readily available, cheap. Most hospital settings, I imagine, will will carry those, and that's a good way to bring that, that ventricular rate down. Once you get it to 80 to 100 beats per minute, um, you're kind of assessing to see you know, one, if the patient spontaneously converted back into normal sinus rhythm. And then at that point, you also are trying to figure out what the next step is. Because if they don't spontaneously convert, then you have to make the decision of, are we going to cardiovert this person back to normal sinus rhythm, or at least try? Um, or are we going to kind of give them more medication to, to be discharged with and hopefully lower the heart rate, continue, you know, continue to lower the heart rate, and then hopefully they'll just kind of convert from there. Um, but that uh, conversation is, is important to kind of figure out where you need to go. Um, you know, one thing that's really important to consider, um, especially if we're going to use direct current, um, you know, electrical cardioversion, is how long, like, the patient's been symptomatic and, and felt that fluttering or that, you know, been an AFib, essentially. Uh, now, that sounds like a no-brainer, like, oh, I've felt, felt, you know, this weird fluttering in my chest mm-hmm. and I came to the hospital happened like an hour ago. That's the ideal situation. The problem is a lot of people will feel, you know, maybe they don't, they don't think it's anything. They don't feel like it's something that they should be worried about. They think it's heartburn, whatever the case may be, they put it off. Um, you know, as a, as a, as a guy, I can say I'd probably be, you know, in that, that realm of like, it's probably nothing. Well, I've definitely had like heart flutters. I would describe them as, and, and my wife's like, oh, they're probably just PVCs. And I'm like, oh yeah, just PVCs. But yeah. you know, if, if I was, maybe it would have to be significant for me to be like, oh, I need to yeah. go to the ER. And I think for a lot of people, if you're going to the ER is a big deal. Cause I mean, yeah. I mean, I, who the heck wants to go there? I can't remember the last time I went to an urgent care or something like that. So yeah. it would have, to, I would have to, so I would probably be one of those guys who would be post to the 48-hour yeah. Oh, uh, I definitely time frame. would be, too. They'd yeah. be like, well, you're going to have to stay like that for a little bit. Yeah, which is not good. <laughs> you know, because so, the, the big question is, you know, are we going to cardiovert them now or are we going to wait? And the reason why we may wait for some patients is because um, – we want to anticoagulate them um, in certain situations. Uh, and, you know, when, when we're electrically cardioverting somebody, uh, you put them at a much higher risk for having a clot after they've cardioverted. They're kind of at a hyper um, thrombotic state, if mm-hmm. you will, to where they can definitely uh, be at higher risk than normal than for throwing a, a clot and having a, a stroke, which would be horrible if we fix the person's, you know, especially an otherwise healthy patient, we fix their AFib and then all of a sudden they had a stroke as a consequence. Um, so kind of keeping uh, track of who needs anticoagulation is, is a very big step in this process. And we'll go through that in a little more detail in a yeah. minute. Um, but also making sure that uh, you've checked oxygen saturation, you've checked electrolytes, um, especially like potassium levels, um, because you want to make sure the patient is kind of like hemodynamically stable. You want to make sure that they're perfusing um, properly, uh, and you know, so their cardiac output or cardiac index is is uh, where it needs to be, and you know, making sure that they're not in a more dire situation where we may need to escalate and maybe turn into a more emergency situation than it already is. 
Right, because there's you know a few situations where you'd be like, yeah, we definitely need to use direct current cardioversion on these guys, um, and hemodynamic instability is one of those. It's it's more of a emergent situation. Um, it's possible that you may need it in a patient's first episode of AFib uh, if it's new onset or newly recognized. Um, they could be a candidate for cardioversion. Um, if it's symptomatic persistent AFib, that's uh, another situation you might consider it. Um, if you need to restore the sinus rhythm uh, with persistent or occasionally uh, in patients with presumed permanent AFib, um, that would be a situation as well. Yeah, especially if the, the patient has had like a long kind of outstanding duration of AFib and now they've started to develop some sort of like like either cardiomyopathy or heart failure, um, then it may be worth your while just to try to cardiovert them again. Um, and then did you mention the hemodynamic instability? Yes, okay, a little good. bit. So that's the other thing that can override the the time frame of when the, the symptoms kind of kicked in. So as far as like who has a low likelihood of successful cardioversion um, or who has a low likelihood of maintaining that normal sinus rhythm after they've been cardioverted. So patients um, are much likely or much less likely to have um, a good outcome after a cardio a cardioversion if they've had um, AFib continuously present for more than one year. Um, obviously sounds reasonable. Um, if they have a um, Markedly, uh, uh, markedly enlarged left atrium. Um, so technically speaking, uh, left uh, the uh, atrial dimension of greater than six centimeters. Um, if a patient who has had um, atrial fibrillation recurrence while they're taking uh, appropriate doses of an antiarrhythmic medication, um, and you know those who have recently undergone cardioversion and who are thinking about doing that again, they have a much less likely uh, chance of having success with it. Um, patients who have failed more than one antiarrhythmic drug um, to keep them in normal sinus rhythm, then you know, they're probably not going to respond as well either. And then, um, you know, cardioversion with long-term maintenance of um, sinus rhythm is likely to be unsuccessful if the underlying kind of condition or whatever's causing that, that person to go into AFib is not fixed. So if the patient has some kind of underlying like pericarditis or, you know, valve disease or something that's leading to that AFib happening and we don't fix that or address that, obviously the odds of them staying in normal sinus rhythm even after cardioverting them is, is low. Right. Right. Uh, as far as a little more detail on when and who to anticoagulate before a direct cardioversion, so like Mike said, if you're hemodynamically unstable, they might just need to be cardioverted urgently and there's not going to be time to get them on a multiple multiple week regimen of, of an anticoagulant. Either way, you want to try to get them on IV heparin or low molecular weight heparin as soon as possible before you cardiovert them just to you know do what you can to get them somewhat um, anticoagulated. Otherwise, if the duration of AFib you know to be longer than 48 hours, or if you don't know how long it's been, um, then patients should be anticoagulated for at least four weeks, or they can receive short-term anticoagulation if they're going to follow that with a transesophageal echocardiography. So they're going to check and, and exclude an atrial thrombus before they cardiovert. So short-term anticoag with a TEE, exclude thrombus, and you can cardiovert at that point as well. And it's actually, um, and you anticoagulate them for at least three weeks. I put it, uh, I put four weeks by accident on, on this reference sheet that I made. So sorry, Cole. 
It's okay. Three weeks, and then four weeks after is the where the four comes into play. Right, I got you. And I reviewed my own. But see, paper. now I'm looking at the guideline, and I see that three weeks before and Look four weeks that. after. Yeah, there you go. I just had inconsistency on my own document. <laughs> very, I'm just very thorough when it comes to attention to detail. Um, all right, so patient's been um, in AFib or atrial, you know, atrial flutter. Even they can kind of treat the same way of uh, 48 hours or longer, or like what, like Cole said, we don't know the duration. Um, three weeks before is what we would recommend giving them, you know, anticoagulation, whether it's warfarin, we can use, um, an, you know, a factor 10 inhibitor or a direct thrombin inhibitor. Um, three weeks before the actual cardioversion, schedule that get them cardioverted, and then you get four more weeks after the cardioversion, regardless of their chads vast score. So that's the, the other piece of it is we always think like along, like afterwards getting anticoagulation is only for people who have that risk of a clot. Just the, just the process of cardioverting someone puts you at higher risk. Mm-hmm. And so that four weeks afterwards is just to make sure that we don't cause an issue. And then the three weeks prior, because if you think about it, you're in AFib, you're, you're, the reason why that clot is a problem is because the heart's not beating you know, its normal rhythm. And so that the blood can kind of pool in that left atrial appendage. And it can, that, it can basically cause a thrombus to form in that um, in that pool of blood, and then that sends that clot flying into the rest of your uh, uh, system, which can obviously lead to a stroke. Right. So because the first destination from the atrium, right? Gonna be up the yeah. Brain, right? yeah. Exactly. So if we can give them anticoagulation for three weeks before, we're hopefully covering any of that, and then we have four weeks after to cover any you know increased risk that they may have due to the cardioversion itself. Right. And we talked a lot about electrical cardioversion, but that four weeks of anticoag after applies to pharmacologic cardioversion as well, regardless mm-hmm. of Chad's vascore. Yep. And, you know, the pharmacological cardioversion, I think, was a little bit bigger back in the day, but probably yeah. before colonized time. Um, the vast majority of people would probably try to use electrical um, cardioversion at this point. Um, you do see some pharmacological cardioversion, but it, you have to deal with more adverse effects and things like that, um, potentially. So um, Electrical direct, stuff is fairly well tolerated, right? Yeah. It, although telling explaining it to a patient yeah. shock is, is kind of I watched my dad have go through his first episode of AFib and the guy's like I was kind of shocked the 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 ED doc was you know this older guy he's hilarious but um he was like yeah I just got shock your chest real quick man you'll be good he go, <laughs> my dad was like wait shock my chest he's like, he's like yeah it'd be cool you 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 barely feel it my dad was like I don't want to get my my chest he's like please I just want to go back to normal sinus <laughs> just give me these meds I'd rather have pulmonary issues and it's blue skin yeah exactly so um this has all been more urgent not necessarily emergent but urgent um what you're going to see more often outpatient is people with chronic afib and they're being treated chronically so there's kind of two two main facets and then some subsets within that so the two main things are um are we going to control their rate or are we going to give them long-term rhythm therapy and then the other question is are we going to or are we not going to anticoagulate them? Spoiler, only very low-risk people are not going to be anticoagulated. So we'll talk about rate and rhythm uh, first, and we'll talk about a little bit of data about that at the end as well. Um, but with the treatment for AFib, you can control the rhythm to obviously just get them back into normal sinus rhythm, and everything's fine. They just have to take these meds, um, and you know they can kick back and forth, but the meds have a lot of side effects associated with them. Uh, with rate, 
the idea is to keep the rate low to a certain degree, um, prevent symptoms, and decrease their risk for um, clotting with anticoagulation. Um, so those are kind of the two strategies. With the rate control, we can use beta blockers. And we'll talk about those. Um, calcium channel blockers, specifically the non-dihydropyridine, and also DIG. You can use digoxin as well. Uh, with rhythm control, you're going to use um, antirhythmic agents, class 1A and 1C agents, um, as well as class 3 agents like amiodarone, you probably heard of, um, sodalol, and defedaline as well. So as far as like all the different antirhythmics that are on the market still, you know, there's a bunch. And so we, to kind of make it as simple as possible, we'll mention a couple of them. Um, we'll spend more time talking about specific ones that you're, at least in our humble opinion, will uh, be more likely to run into than others. Um, and, and just hearing the names of these drugs, I think side effects, which is not a good sign. But whenever <laughs> I just, I see the names, I'm like, man, there's a lot of side effects associated with these guys. Yes. So they have something called the um, Vaughn Williams classification, and that's kind of like the breakdown of like the subclasses of all the different types of antiarrhythmics. So the the first group or, or class one is then further broken up into A, B, and C. So one one A, one B, one C. Um, one A is a sodium and potassium channel blocker that's kind of like an intermediate effect uh, or length of time, um, and that's going to be things like uh, procanamide. Um, and we also have our 1B, which is like our um, sodium channel blockers. It's fast on, fast off. Um, that's going to be things like our lidocaine. Um, then we have our 1C, which is our sodium channel blockers. That's going to be slow on, slow off. And that's going to be the ones that you'd be more likely to run into, like flecainide or propafenone. I feel like I see flecainide the most. I've seen it. I saw it one time recently. Yeah. And uh, the PA was like, why are we using this? <laughs> and uh, the patient came in with it. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, just pill in the pocket. Yeah. Just go for it. Yeah. You're going to love it. It's 1980 all over again. <laughs> uh, then uh, we have our class two, um, and that's our, our true beta blockers like Esmolol. Um, class three, we have our potassium channel blockers, and that's where we see things like amiodarone, uh, defetilide, drenetarone. Um, Sotolol is also in that class, which is a beta blocker. It's a non-selective beta blocker, but it has more class three potassium mm-hmm. channel blocking properties as far as its antiarrhythmic property. And so it's it's put in that class because that's more appropriate as far as how it's it acts in the body. But it is technically a beta blocker. So that can get a little confusing. Um, and sometimes you'll see class four is listed as like diltiazem and verapamil. Um, but I don't know if the, I, I have to look back and see if that was even in the original classification, mm. but I've seen that listed sometimes. Right. You want to take flecainide since you brought a pill in the pocket? Yes. So flecainide, um, it's been around for quite some time. Um, and the thing I always think about when I hear flecainide is, is the term, the, the pill in the pocket approach. <laughs> so basically what happens is that I thought that was illegal. Pill in the pocket. As long as you, if, I, get, if I hear the phrase "pill in the pocket," I think it's. it's just what, are keep, the, what are these? What pills are these people keeping in their pocket? Keep it in the prescription bottle. That way, everybody <laughs> knows it's not something really fun. Um, so, basically, what what they do is they are they're using the flaconide to basically pharmacologically cardiovert the person, but on their own. Like the patient is basically able to terminate their own proxismal AFib um, in an you know outpatient setting, kind of by themselves. Well, you know, now they have those, you've seen the commercials for the thing, you, you attach to your phone, put your thumbs on, and it's like a, supposed to be a at-home EKG kind of thing. 
I haven't seen it's that. FDA cleared. Is it? I haven't looked into it, so I don't know if it's good or bad. But the Apple are, Watch is FDA cleared for detecting AFib too. I think. Right? Oh, really? I think so. Then, yeah. That, I mean, that's probably fine. It's this thing you get for like a hundred bucks on Amazon, and that's it cool. Gives you a readout. Don't quote me on the Apple Watch thing. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, don't quote me but, on the Amazon thing either. No, I just quote Cole, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> don't quote either of us on anything. Yeah, that's a good, that's even better policy. <laughs> Um, so there are some cardiologists that will have patients take a uh, diltiazem or a beta blocker 30 minutes before they do their pill in the pocket fleconide, um, just to make sure if there is a rapid ventricular rate that, um, we can kind of lower that and, uh, making sure that it doesn't like convert to atrial flutter or something like that. Um, you know, some providers will have the patient to, you know, basically have the fleconide on standby, but still come to the ED so that they can be monitored and, you know, safely given the medication. Um, but they, they kind of bring their own treatment with them and then get monitored when they're there. Um, and then this is something that we definitely do not use in patient. We don't really use this a lot anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and say that disclaimer. But it is used, so whether or not you're using yes. it, your patients might have, have it used. Exactly. So hopefully you can get them on better stuff because you're more up to date. But, um, you know, the ones that we really want to avoid this and it's like contraindicated are patients that have like structural heart disease, um, especially the left ventricular systolic dysfunction um, or coronary artery disease. We need to make sure that we stay away from the uh, the class one uh, medications because they can cause issues and in, in, um, worsen the, the heart failure or whatever the case may be. Right. Yep. Um, some other contraindications would be like heart block unless the patient has a functional uh, artificial pacemaker. Also, you don't want to use it in heart failure or post-MI patients. Um, side effects that you would probably, the obvious ones you would think of, dizziness, maybe some visual disturbances, also trouble breathing, um, and then monitoring it with an EKG, their vitals, and it is a substrate for 2D6, so it does have some significant drug interactions. And back to that FDA cleared thing, I don't know the difference between the phrase FDA cleared and FDA approved, mm. but whenever I hear, like when I hear FDA approved, I'm like, oh yeah, that was approved by the FDA. Yep. But when I hear FDA cleared, I'm like, the FDA pretty much says that that's not going to kill you. Yeah. But no, I, I don't know. Maybe that's the same as FDA approved, but it that, just doesn't sound the same. That means it came by someone's desk and they were like, yeah, it's about to be Friday afternoon. I'm not reading this nonsense. It's a watch. Right. Sure, you, text, you check your text messages. It probably can detect AFib. Basically it's, saying it's I have more dangerous things to look at, so right. I'm going to put the clear stamp on that. Yeah, that's probably exactly how it goes down. Yeah, it's right? good, good that neither of us actually know. <laughs> But we can just talk we, about what we think. If you guys have any other questions about how the FDA does things, just let us know. <laughs> just let us know. We're FDA, pretty tight with the FDA. FDA sends us a cease and desist for yeah, you saw slander. That, you saw that new um, Alzheimer's drug that was approved or yes. whatever. Yeah, we were, uh, we're, we're tight with the FDA, so we knew that was coming. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. But I and, feel like that got a cleared stamp, you know, because it was that expedited approval oh, thing. Oh, yeah. That's the first that, time we've had a treatment right. that actually might do something. Might do something. As opposed to... But uh, then the advisory panel was like just a little while ago, we're all pretty poo-poo about it. Huh. And FDA was like, whatever. Cleared. <laughs> we're yeah. pushing it through. You're the advisory panel just for looks. We don't care what you have to say. <laughs> yeah, I need to, I haven't looked up too much on it, so I need to definitely research that one. Yeah, Anna actually did a... Um, it did have a name at the time. It had a generic name, but it, I think it was in phase three trials a few years ago when she was in school. She did like a poster presentation on it. Oh, that's cool. And now it's here. There it is. Yeah. She basically invented it. Basically. Yeah. She's she's <laughs> one of the founding fathers of, of that drug. Propafenone. Propafenone, <laughs> yes. Um, so it can also be used, obviously, for pharmacologic cardioversion. It's pretty similar to flecking in that sense. Um, 
significantly more effective in paroxysmal AFib as opposed to persistent AFib, so that's good to know. Um, also, structural heart disease, this one's a no-go, particularly left ventricular, ventricular systolic dysfunction and coronary artery disease. This one's a no-go. Um, but the administration of propafenone prior to electrical cardioversion um, doesn't alter the energy requirements for for or the success rate of the cardioversion, which is interesting. Yeah. But basically, so I guess that was probably a study when they looked at that. Yeah. Versus cardioversion. Yep. Yep. So let's talk about our friend that most of you would be familiar with. This is one that you definitely will run into at some point or other, but our good buddy amiodarone. Uh, so side effects with amiodarone, just say plentiful. Yeah, I'm not sure that people would call it their good buddy after yeah, having taken it. That's true. That's a good point. A lot of the side effects we have to be a little it's my aware necessary of. evil amiodarone. There you go. It's a better, more elegant way of there putting it. I like that. That's why we keep cool around. So black box warning um, is it can cause pulmonary and hepatotoxicity. And typically uh, with pulmonary, we're talking about like pulmonary fibrosis. Um, some things to also be aware of that aren't considered like black box warnings, but still can happen is um, thyroid levels can go up or down. Hypo and hyperthyroidism are both it can't possible. decide. It can't decide. What are we going to do today? Either one. Hypo is more common, mm. so you know. Hopefully, if you're a betting man, then uh, you know you you can guess right. But um, neurotoxicity is also a big one. Uh, optic um, neuropathy, so visual impairment, and you know having to have eye exams and things like that. Photosensitivity, and as, as uh, Cole alluded to earlier, it can cause a bluish coloring uh, or discoloration of the skin. So. Nobody really wants that, I don't think. Um, so that's it lets some really weird kind of potentially serious adverse effects. The more common adverse effects, hypotension, uh, bradycardia, um, corneal uh, microdeposits can happen, constipation. Yeah, um, it can cause tremors. So lots of, of things to kind of be aware of. Uh, make sure you're checking liver function tests every six months or so. Um, thyroid labs every three to six months. Um, the half-life of this medication is 40 to 50 days. I remember, uh, I told this in my class too, but I remember I had a, um, a patient that called when I was still working like in the dispensing pharmacy. And they had their primary care doctor tell them they had to do every other day dosing with amiodarone to, to quote, titrate off of it. Um, and then the cardiologist was like, that's absurd. Just stop taking it. You'll be fine. And then so I was the tie. I This random dude that she's never met was the tiebreaker. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I think the cardiologist is... Knows what he's talking about <laughs> in this guy because if you know in that case it's such a long half life you'd be titrating off forever because you right. <laughs> never get out. It titrates itself with a half life. Exactly, it's the fluoxetine of antiarrhythmics. There you go. That's what I like to think of it as. Um, but uh, it's one of the recommended um, antiarrhythmics um, that we use if a patient has AFib um, and also has heart failure as a comorbidity. Um, we, we had mentioned flecainide and propafenone not being used in you know, structural heart disease. This is one that we can use. And so it does have a lot of side effects associated with it. But in that case where we have AFib and um, heart failure, it's one of our first line options. Yeah, Prozac's over there like, why are you why are you comparing me to amiodarone? I just, you know, I don't cause anybody's skin to turn blue. I just don't cause discontinuation syndrome. That's right. That's how the Philoxetein talks, by the way. Black box warning. So, so I'm about to talk about Sotolol, which also has a black box warning. And it makes me think, since we're tight with the FDA, mm-hmm. it seems like the FDA is very intentional about the the verbiage it uses. Mm-hmm. Black box, why black box? But definitely, you see that, you're like, cool, black box warning. It makes me think that it was very intentional that they have an FDA approved and FDA cleared. 
So I'd really like an email as to, to why they have that because I'm not going to look it up. I'd rather somebody just email me. Wasn't there a, isn't that something in an airplane too? Like the little. It's the black box. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, that everything's recorded on and they go recover from plane crashes and stuff. Maybe the guy who invented that terminology for the FDA used to be an airline pilot. Mm. It's a theory. It's, it's a theory. <laughs> and I'm well, going to go with it. If only there was a website that we could go to that would tell us answers to our stupid questions that Wikipedia. we ask. Wikipedia. <laughs> or any of the others. <laughs> any ask reputable Jeeves. website. Yeah, ask Jeeves. Okay, so yeah, Sotolol, it does have a black box warning as well for life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias. Uh, not ideal. Um, but it, the risk of that can be decreased if this is started in the hospital and monitored. Um, it does have renal dose adjustments, so you're aware. Um, it has contraindications, like if a patient has acquired long QT syndrome, um, uncontrolled heart failure, sinus bradycardia, um, would all be contraindications. It can cause bradycardia, chest pain, fatigue, um, dyspnea, low blood pressure, that sort of thing. They did compare it to amiodarone in one trial called the SAFE-T trial, and that's SAFE-T. Uh, they tried to get a little cute. Mm -hmm. um, as far as converting patients to normal sinus rhythm, there was no difference. It was equal to amiodarone, but amiodarone was uh, better and superior in terms of maintaining normal sinus rhythm. So still a lot of side effects, maybe slightly less than amiodarone, um, but in most cases, I, I would probably go with amiodarone. So a medication that we are not a fan of, um, especially um, in the case of a patient who has heart failure as well as AFib, right. is called dronetarone, brand name Multac. Uh, the, it carries a black box warning um, for increased risk of death and stroke in heart failure patients or in patients with permanent AFib. So there's several studies that have showed this kind of uh, bleak outlook. Um, I think the Andromeda study was one of them, and there's been several. But basically, if a patient has AFib and you and they also have heart failure as well, this is a very bad drug to start them in. And I believe the number needed to quote unquote die was in the single digits, if I remember correctly. So single digits for death. For death. Mm. So hopefully. <laughs> You're treating more than nine people with uh, dronetarone, and you're still, and you're gonna have uh, not good outcomes. So let's just, my rule of thumb is we'll just put that in the trash pile, like so many of our other drugs. Um, dronetarone is. Uh, just don't listen to those drug reps. Equals trash. They'll try to tell you something different. Yeah, you gotta be careful. Some of them are cool though. So if you're a drug rep. I mean the Moltac uh, drug reps. Yeah, Do they have those still. I. It's branded. I so, Could you right? imagine having to sell that drug? Ugh. I know somebody Sorry does about though. This. This drug stinks. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry, Bobby. This kills people, but like, I have Bob, to try to sell this to you. I have to sell it. They, they, they make me. Um, so warnings with um, dronetarone besides, you know, killing people with heart failure is um, it can also cause lung disease. It can cause acute renal failure, um, can lead to hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia. And so, yeah, it's blech. trash with a side of trash. Blech. Yep. Um, so Tikasin, defetilide, uh, is another option with another black box warning um, that it must be started or restarted in a setting with a continuous ECG being monitored. So that's kind of inconvenient, but that's how it has to be started or restarted if a patient's been off of it. Um, also contraindicated if your QT is long or you have prolonged QT intervals. Um, if your heart rate's less than 50, cranial clearance less than 20, you can't start it. And specifically with that QT, if it's greater than 440, um, uh, then you cannot start it. And it can cause nonspecific headache and dizziness, adverse effects, also ventricular tachycardias, and of course, uh, increase the QT. 
And technically, with but based on the package insert, you know, when they say starting your inpatient to be able to monitor your EKG and also um, your your CMP and all that good stuff, uh, they want you to be inpatient for three days. On the mm. So it's it's quite a bit to get you on that. But the other thing that um, I mentioned about uh, defedalazepam is that it's another agent that we can use if the patient has uh, AFib and heart failure. So if amiodarone is not an option, then defedalazepam would be the next go-to as mm. long as you can get them started on it appropriately. Gotcha. And make sure they're adherent so they don't have to go back in the hospital and restart it. That would right. be a nightmare. So as far as like picking between these agents, um, there is a whole bunch of trials that have you know looked at certain agents compared to others or looking at like large meta-analyses. Um, and so basically what they find is that drugs like flecainide and propafenone, um, you know, it's the uh, soda law, those tend to, this is kind of a broad overview, but they tend to be pretty similar as far as, um, you know, how effective they are at maintenance of sinus rhythm, um, fewer episodes of proxismal AFib and all that kind of stuff. Um, amiodarone tends to be more effective than those other agents. Um, and so when they've compared it to, like in a meta-analysis, um, they compared uh, amiodarone to, to flecainide, um, and amiodarone was better at maintaining sinus rhythm at 12 months um, and significantly more likely with, or um, was significantly more likely with amiodarone, 60% versus 34% of patients with flecainide. Um, there's also the CTAF trial, um, which was looking at um, patients who had had at least one episode of atrial fibrillation, and um, within six months of um, being on low-dose amiodarone, sotalol, or propafenone, um, and after the mean follow-up was around 16 months, um, amiodarone was associated with a significantly greater likelihood of being free from recurrent AFib um, at that 16-month mark. So basically what it kind of boils down to is the other agents can be effective, especially when compared to each other. Um, amiodarone does tend to be more effective, but it also has a whole slew of side effects more. So if the patient doesn't have structural heart disease and we're just kind of dealing with the AFib portion, um, it probably would be better off, and especially from a side effect profile that we give Sotolol or Flecainide or something like that if we're going to go that route. Um, and then if that doesn't work, then switch to amiodarone and just monitor for adverse effects. That doesn't always happen. There's definitely some people who get put right on amiodarone. You know, that's definitely an option. Um, but if they don't have any other comorbidities, you could consider one of the other agents first to see if it does the trick. Right. Right. Which the takeaway point from all of that is lots of side effects with those drugs, which is why when it was, you know, somewhat determined that rate control is a reasonable alternative, a lot of people tend towards rate control. So that was a good uh, review of antiarrhythmics because I feel like they get skipped over a lot. Thanks, Cole. A lot of people, you know, just tend towards rate we, control. We need the Cole stamp of approval. Yeah. Like in each episode now. I'm, you know, at the end of it, you'd be like, you know what? We did all right. Trying to be a little more encouraging. Some episodes, no, I'm just making fun of Mike the whole time. But and it hurts my. He bullies me. I it's bully ridiculous. him verbally and emotionally. Uh, yeah, and I just yeah, it takes me a while to recover, and then I'm like, um, then I'm over it. <laughs> so I'm just here to lift you up today. Thanks, man. That's yeah. cool. That's good stuff. It's a great review. Have a good day tomorrow. <laughs> It's a good good work day, good Friday. Solid Friday tomorrow, coming right up. So now we'll hit rate control a little bit, but you're probably much more familiar with um, the therapies used to, tr to for rate control. Um, so non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers are an option, like diltiazem and barapamil, not the um, uh, dihydropyridine options. Um, obviously, these can be used to, to treat um, blood pressure, which is usually where you hear the term calcium channel blocker. Uh, these two are, are more frequently um, probably used to treat arrhythmias versus blood pressure. 
Um, they inhibit calcium ions from entering vascular smooth muscle in myocardial cells, and they're a, a bit more selective for the myocardium than the dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, which is why they are, are more effective to treat this. So they're negative inotropes and negative chronotropes. So you remember those terms from some cardiology, but inotrope is the force of ventricular um, contraction, and then the chronotrope is the heart rate, like uh, chrono rate, right? Yeah, time. Um, yeah. Um, sinus bradycardia, AV block, hypotension, those are all warnings with these. Um, and they have adverse effects, like if had high doses, they can cause cardiac conduction abnormalities, um, peripheral edema, constipation. It's more common with verapamil, um, some nausea. Uh, but in general, they're they're better tolerated than the um, antiarrhythmics. Yeah. Um, we mentioned uh, digoxin at um, one point, but um, you know the thing with digoxin, it's it is going to lower like the heart rate and whatnot. But you have to monitor um, EKG, heart rate, blood pressure, electrolytes, renal function. Then you actually have to get a dig level to make sure that they're not uh, at risk for any kind of toxicity. Um, so patients, especially if they're at risk, where if they have like low potassium or magnesium, um, that can increase their chances of having dig toxicity. Um, and then so you want to warn patients if you do decide to go this route because you just for whatever reason, like Dig, um, then more in patients that if they start having like kind of continuous nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, bradycardia, um, those are like kind of like the initial signs of toxicity and just to, you know, make sure that they're aware of that. Um, also lots of drug-drug interactions. So digoxin can increase um, levels of verapamil, um, amiodarone. So if you're for whatever reason, giving these two together, then it can cause a problem. And there's also, you know, things like itraconazole, and hopefully you're not taking that too long-term, but um, still some interactions. And um, then, of course, beta blockers. So we're not going to go through all of those, but common things being common, you'll see those most often um, because of their higher safety profile, better tolerated, used for other comorbidities. Um for heart failure, for example, there there's first-line beta blockers for heart failure, so you'll frequently um, maybe see a rate control strategy being um, combined there if they have heart failure in AFib. Um, but yeah, beta blockers are, are frequently kind of first-line for rate versus rhythm. So like we've been alluding to, there was a large trial comparing the two because previously rhythm strategies were uh, more common, and, and, it, and the rate strategy was... Um, maybe not deemed as effective or they just weren't sure if it was as effective um, versus the rhythm control. Um, so they did compare rate strategies with the beta blockers, the calcium channel blockers and DIGS or a combination thereof versus the rhythm strategies of uh, various antiarrhythmics. Um, at, a, at a five-year mortality of a primary outcome, it showed no difference, which was great, which was you know what we consider a landmark clinical trial and a, a practice-changing clinical trial, a firm trial. Um, so there's no difference as far as, um, you know, how effective the treatment was, but with rhythm strategy, there was a higher risk for hospitalizations, significantly more adverse effects. And because of that, a lot of people will kind of lean towards the, the rate control to avoid those side effects and hospitalizations. Doesn't mean rhythm control is not used. Doesn't mean it's a bad option, um, for certain patients, but, uh, because of this, a lot of people lean towards the rate control. And, and there have been some criticisms towards the affirm trial uh, as far as like the 
possible selection bias. So basically patients that have had sort of frequent or severe symptoms um, might have been considered unsuitable for rate control. Um, so they may have not been enrolled by those investigators. Mm-hmm. And so they you know may have been um, kind of, they could have kind of maybe skewed the direction in favor of the entire rhythmics possibly. Um, and then if they had some sort of uniformity as far as the drugs that they selected, um, that may have helped as well, but they kind of just let the, you know, the investigators pick whatever drug they, they wanted to. Um, and it's also, you know, not necessarily something we apply to younger, healthier patients, um, or, you know, patients that are maybe a little bit older, but they don't have any other risk factors for things like stroke or whatnot. Um, you know, then, we may get some other, um, some further benefit that we didn't actually see. Um, and so it's, it's kind of, you know, debated still, but for the most part, and when you look at it from a population standpoint, we can get by with rate control in a lot of these patients and, and kind of go on about our, our day. Right. And if you're treating a patient, especially with multiple comorbidities, look at the trial and make sure it fits into, you know, that patient population before you choose what you're going to choose. Now, speaking of heart rate, uh, one of the things that we had done in the past was to kind of be a little bit strict with the, the goal heart rate. So we wanted to get that heart rate less than 80 because we figured if the heart rate's low, then they can't have that ven- rapid ventricular response, which you know, maybe could even precipitate out another episode of um, AFib. So they did a study called RACE2 where they took um, patients and gave them more lenient rate control, uh, which was a goal heart rate of less than 110 versus strict rate control, which was that less than 80. Um, basically, the study showed that the lenient control was just as effective as the less than 80. And so the now rule of thumb is that if a patient, you know, can start off with their, their rate control and all that, they, they have a goal of a heart rate less than 110 to start. Now, if they are still symptomatic at that point, then we push the goal back down to below 80 again. But um, we don't have to do that with every single patient like we thought back in the day. Right. Right. So, yeah, that is rate versus rhythm. So the other big facet is we want to prevent... A stroke. We want to. We might need to anticoagulate somebody, right? So that's the other big facet to AFib treatment. So how to determine whether a patient needs to be anticoagulated or not? Because not everybody necessarily does. If they're very low risk, we have the CHADS VAS score or the CHADS two double two VAS score. They say CHADS two, but there's two twos in there. Um, and it's it's essentially you get one point for having. It's an acronym. You get one point for having a certain condition, and you get two points for having a couple of others. Um, so the C is congestive heart failure. H is hypertension, so blood pressure greater than 140 over 90. Um, I wonder if they'll ever revise that. I know, it'd be interesting. Um, age over 75 is two points. D is for diabetes. Um, S is for stroke or TIA, gets you two points. V for vascular disease. A for 65 to 74 years old, so another age component only gets you one point. And then SC for sex category, which I always thought was a clunky way of putting it, but I guess it gives you VASC at the end. Um is female gives you an automatic point. So if a male has a score of two or greater, um, or a female has a score of three or greater, then they do recommend being anticoagulated uh, with specifically warfarin or one of the DOACs. There's four of them, and that's kind of where the recommendation is. And, and the guidelines now, the before they would say kind of just you pick your poison, um, there was way more data with warfarin, obviously. But now that some of the head-to-head trials that have come out, 
um, where they've compared the the DOAX to warfarin specifically. Um, for example, like with dabigatran or Pradaxa, um, we saw in the RELY trial that when you compare to warfarin, you, you reduce the, the stroke risk um, without increasing the risk of major bleeding. Um, however, there was a higher risk of MI with dabigatran. So it was better for reducing stroke and bleed risk, but could cause an MI. So that's not good. So dabigatran is not used nearly as often. Um, Rivaroxaban um, versus warfarin, so Xeralto, was the rocket AF trial, and that one reduced stroke risk just as well as, as warfarin's was not inferior, um, and there was not really a difference in adverse effects. So as far as, you know, have, not having to con- do lab work and check INRs and all that stuff, it's definitely a, a good option um, and something that if, as long as the patient can afford it and all that, then, then it may be a good alternative. Now, Eliquis, Apixaban, uh, was looked at compared to Warfarin in the Aristotle trial. Great guy, and uh, I think. And um, that showed that not only did it have— He was any, a terrible guy. Was he? No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm saying, God, that's so disappointing. <laughs> I have no idea. I think he was good. Okay, good. Because we, we know about him, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Probably smart. Probably. Uh, great. I throw, totally threw me off my game call. I was just about to tell you guys all about the Aristotle trial. The summary of the, the endpoint was that it had a greater stroke reduction with, with Eliquis compared to Warfarin and a lower bleed risk. So that's a twofer. It's good. And no increase of MI, like Dabigatran. It's great. Yeah. So Eliquis might be the one. Let's, might be let's the one. see what else we got. We also have this drug called Cerveza that... You may or may not have ever seen before. There's um, a reason for that. Yeah, adoxaban. Um, so it was looked at in the uh, Engage AF Timmy 48 because they liked to in their trials a lot of you know words. Um, they did have uh, greater stroke reduction, they think, but there was some kind of there was some uh, discrepancies possibly about how they some questions some questionable uh, reporting of data. Um, you know. And it, it happens, I'm sure. Sadly. But uh, it, it, we th- maybe have greater stroke reduction and then potentially lower adverse effects. But again, the data may have gotten a little skewed. One caveat to Adoxaban that hopefully you're aware of, but maybe kind of maybe forgot, it is one of the only drugs, if not the only drug that I can think of, that if your creatinine clearance is too high, so your kidneys are too healthy, you can't take it. Um, so if your creatinine clearance is greater than 95 mils per minute, uh, it's contraindicated. And then if it's less than 15 mils per minute, it's contraindicated. So you got to have your kidneys in that sweet spot. Otherwise, endoxaban is not coming home with you. Um, or you can just do a pixaban, Eliquis, and get Make it easy. Better. So we've got that for the easy. Now it is twice a day, so maybe it's true. next line below that we would put rivaroxaban, which is once daily. But yeah, if you can, Eliquis is a good option. And one thing to consider is if you are worried about the patient's adherence, and this sounds a little counterintuitive at first because when you typically think adherence, you're thinking, oh, the warfarin's one we got to stay away from because, you know, we have to get the patient to come back and check, check their INR like very frequently in the beginning until it's stable. And so the thought is that, oh, if it's adherence, then give them a, you know, a, a DOAC so that you don't have to worry about it. They're automatically anticoagulated and you're good to go. The problem is with the when the reason why adherence becomes an issue is because yes, the DOAX you know anticoagulate them immediately. However, if you stop them, um, you become unanti 
coagulated completely coagulated um yeah fairly quickly uh, i actually re- i remember very vividly being on uh i did a week with the stroke team when i was on my neurology rotation and uh, when i was in school and um, there was a, a guy who had afib was on um, Zeralto for stroke prevention um, came to charleston to visit you know just the area and was with his family he had forgotten his Zeralto at home but he was only gonna be here for three days and he just was like nah who cares um, on day three, he suffered a massive stroke on the beach and passed away. And I was like, I don't know why that's like stuck in my head from like way back when, but I just remember thinking, uh, we need to make sure patients are aware they have to take this and not stop it abruptly. If you are worried about a patient stopping it abruptly, then actually go with warfarin. Cause even though it might be harder to get them stable based on their INR, at least once they are going to coagulated, then it's going to take a while for it to kind of come off again and they have to wait for those um you know those vitamin k dependent factors to kind of come back and, right and your inr doesn't go from two to zero in 24 hours it goes no. down to 1.8 or whatever right. it is and, and over time so it's better for non-adherence um but because of that that is why the um that fighter pilot guy at the fda put a black box warning on <laughs> the doax for uh, an increased risk of thrombotic events with abrupt discontinuation so it's an important point to hit uh and mention the black box to, to make sure patients... I hope I'm right about that theory. How crazy would that be if I called it perfectly? I'd be so proud of myself. I'd be like, my, I'd be like, all right, my career is done. I'm good to go. Uh, but to make sure that the patient's taken. Other reasons why it might be better if a patient has limited transportation to get to INR appointments, then DOAX might be a better option there too. If cost is a significant issue and you can't work with the, I mean, there are options to work with, um, you know, patient assistance programs and the manufacturers to make sure they can get these DOACs. Um, but long term, if that just becomes an issue, then Warfarin might be a better option there as well. But um, yeah, frequently there is a way to get people on these brand name drugs uh, if needed. Check out your local FQHCs. Um, for example, mine has Zeralto for, I believe, 15, 20 bucks for a month supply cash okay. cash whether you well, have what if i told not. you i could get warfarin for 20 cents a pill well i would say i'm trying to make sure my patients don't have <laughs> don't have a stroke so you keep your warfarin now. um we're uh, we're hoping that eloquist will drop for us with our 340b pricing so yeah. we can really rock out but it's probably coming up on patent sometime not too long right yeah i don't really know how they pick and choose like some of them will just drop one, like Victoza for us, just all of a sudden dropped yeah. in the, the price, and we were able to discount it significantly. So mm. it's kind of random. You just got to check it every month. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, I, it's probably more less, or it's probably less random than I'm actually making it sound. I just haven't done the research to find out the actual pattern. Right. So I just kind of wing it <laughs> and check every month. I think we could do a whole episode deep dive on um, anticoagulant AFib. Okay. Probably could, right? Sure. Yeah, I think we could. Do a subcategory of Well, episode. there's a lot of specifics, you know. There is. We're going to have to start doing that at some point. We've been saying that for a while now. I know. And then we just keep repeating old episodes. I know. So, yeah, what are you going to do? We try, guys. We try. But, you know, sometimes we fall up short. Especially, I think this uh, is a great episode. Oh, good. I'm upbeat today. You are upbeat. That's good That's good to have you here, Cole. <laughs> As always. So, um, anything else we got to talk about it like, we'll save the rest of the anti-coag stuff for another time then. yeah we'll yeah we'll, we'll do a specific one because you know there's bridging and all that kind of stuff and maybe a little deep dive on the trials and whatnot who knows not with with afib anymore see i took that away now oh Only yeah they did take DVT. away the bridging so, yes oof, maybe we'll do an episode all on all well you, yeah anti-coag usually when you're talking about these you, you you hit dbtp yeah and which we've done before but we didn't do a deep dive into it and then afib yeah yeah definitely deep dive coming right up people yeah 
All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, I really hope that you uh, that was helpful and you know you guys like that. But um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you know, feel free to email us. Our uh, emails will be in the show notes, like always. Um, if you guys have not checked out our episodes, um, for those of you who are pharmacists or nurses, if you have not checked out our episodes that we've done through freece.com, um, please take a look at those. You can kind of uh, not only listen to your podcast like we like you hopefully are doing anyway but then you can actually get credit towards your license renewal as well so we have two episodes available we got four more on the way um so you should be able to knock out a chunk of your continuing ed um with that and if you're not a free ce member um make sure you check out uh their website and then use the code um corcon rx so c-o-r-c-o-n-r-x and they'll give you um a discount on the annual membership fee and then you get access to not only the podcast episodes but every single other thing they offer and they have a lot of material so. and if you're in south carolina they took away the live ce requirements which so you, is fantastic you could get all of your ce all of well them. assuming that they keep working with us and don't kick us to the curb <laughs> but um so we'll try to do a good job for them but uh but a mixture of podcasts and other things you yeah so you can get all of your ce hopefully from just the podcast that'd be great and then i'd feel like we really like we're a part of your license yeah can't speak to other states but south carolina yeah. no live ce right now yeah it's very strange but what are you going to do? So thank you guys for listening. Um, like I said, please email us if you have any questions or concerns. Uh, hit us up on any of the social media platforms. You can text us directly, 415-943-6116. Um, and also thank you guys so much for uh, those of you who are checking out our Patreon. Um, that's helping out a lot, and uh, I'm really excited to see how many people are um, subscribing to that. I hope you guys are enjoying the lectures. we got over 80 lectures on there now that are a lot more structured and more um, pharmacotherapy, like actual classroom type, if that's more your, your style. And there's probably... Th- I would say thousands of PowerPoint slides as well you can download. So if you are a subscriber, you can uh, get access to all of it. So essentially you can spend $3, download all of our stuff, and just run for the hills and for 3 bucks and some time to download. So take advantage of that sweet savings. <laughs> but thank you guys so much. We'll catch you guys next time. Have a good one.